Hi, my name's Nigel Adderley. Welcome to Man Marking. And we're asking, where's the talking, lads? You've got to get into, out of the game where you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Marking, Series 4, Episode 4. And today, we're talking to Nigel Adderley. Yeah, uh, my name's uh, Nigel Adderley. I am a football commentator, although not at the moment. Um, and I used to work at the BBC uh, for many years before I went freelance after the um, 2012 Olympics. And I work for uh, a number of people at the moment um, in normal circumstances, um, commentating on football. A lot of the time, people ignore mental health, not, not just in, in football, but, but, but in, in life in general. And I think it's, it's, it's very important. I mean, we've seen so many... Uh, people in football who who appear to be um, infallible and, and have a superhero status um, suddenly crumble for a variety of reasons and, and sometimes with, with very horrible consequences. And I think that there needs to be a, a greater understanding of of the illness um, and various illnesses. I mean, I, I'm epileptic and, and that's a, a stress-related illness and, and, and I, th- I don't think anybody is immune to it. Um, I don't think footballers on several hundred thousand pounds a week are, are immune to it just as much as uh, supporters who may be trying to scrape the money together to go and watch a game. As is the usual custom, I'm joined by my friends and fellow presenters, Ryan and Anthony. Lads, how are we, Ryan? You're looking, you're looking <laughs> joyful. Lads, how are we, Ryan? Yeah, I'm, I'm splendid, mate. Absolutely gagging for this. He's gagging for it. <laughs> and... It's a little bit more than we need to know. <laughs> How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm good, yeah. Good, really good very yeah. good. How's your week been? Uh, yeah, it's been okay. It's a little bit little bit difficult in work, but yeah, it's all right. I had a nice day of cricket yesterday to boys. And uh, you also sent us a photo earlier this week of an enormous sunflower that you have in your back garden. Yeah, we're, uh, we're on our way to a rainforest in the backyard. We've got some carrots, a Christmas tree, and uh, a couple of sunflowers, and they are massive. They are <laughs> carrots come from the massive. rainforest. <laughs> It's, the it's most not British rainforest ever. It's, it's, it's not your most traditional rainforest, <laughs> but yeah, it's, yeah, sunflowers are huge. Yeah, massive. Um, what's in your back garden, right? Got avocados, funnily enough. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think they, they, they should be in the rainforest, yeah. I think. The yeah. We avocados growing in Birkenhead, I think. Absolutely superb. How 21st century have you to have avocados? Are they smashed avocados? They're not, they, we haven't got any. Are you growing? produced any avocados yet. We've just got the plants. They're about five foot. Right, okay. <laughs> I can supply some photos for the uh, the Twitter feed. Yeah, please do. Online. I'm sure people who are listening are thinking, God, all I need in my it's life is pictures. Do you know when you take the pip out of an avocado? Yeah. If you stick it half of it in water, half out, it'll start growing roots and you just plant it. Seeds. Right, okay. Yeah. Blimey, didn't expect this to take a turn. Anyway, this is a football <laughs> show, so we will return to some football chat. We've got Nigel Adley on the show this week, football commentator, talk sports, BBC, yeah. The Works. All of them. And commentators have become, over the years, an integral part of the way that we experience and enjoy football. 
Would we agree? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the most famous and enjoyable football moments have been commentated on. They've been highlighted. They've been in, etched in your memory yeah. by commentators. Yeah. And even some of the least famous moments, maybe some maybe moments that would have disappeared into the ether, have perhaps been kept alive by some interesting comments from the old people behind the mics. Go on, Ant, what are you going to say? It's, it's not really a commentator, but did you see that Steve McLaren video really, really yes, tight again yes, this week? Yes, it's yes, absolutely yes. Stupid. It is undoubtedly, I'm going to put it up there, it was one of the greatest moments of football broadcasting ever. <laughs> what, what are we talking about? Here, you know when McLaren is commentating for Sky Sports on the Iceland game from the Euros? Oh, uh, and he's saying, yeah, we're, we're going to dom- like we're dominating, we're just... Yeah, uh, England have recovered well, and... Yeah. Um, all they've got up front is the the big. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. But as you say, that is not a commentator's moment. Yeah, it's true. So what we are yeah. going to talk about? We're going to do a little commentator's quiz. Okay. And what I've got for you here, I've got five pieces of football commentary, and I'm going to read them out, and I'm going to try and do them in the kind of styly that they were first oh, God. projected. Not going to do any impressions, but I'm going to kind of go with the atmos. Yeah. Um, and what I want you to tell me is. Who the person is that I'm repeating the words of and what they are commentating on. Okay. okay. Is it all football, yeah? It's all football. Now, do you want to compete one against the other or do you want to Pop work as a team? Pop smash me at this, so I'd rather work as a team. But if you want a nice early win... Do you know what? I'll, I'll set my alpha ego aside. I'll go with a team. We'll, go with well team, for yeah. once you have set that alpha yeah, ego yeah. aside. <laughs> it's, it's, over, it's overwhelming most of the time. Okay, so number one. Number one. It's not often I'm speechless. When you pay twenty eight million for a special talent, this is what you get. Shea Given is that side, and he can't get anywhere near it. That's just stunning, absolutely stunning. Well, me and Pop are whispering at each other. My first thought was Robinho. No, but no, who were you thinking? It was Shea Givens and got Rooney. Yeah, Rooney uh, against that volley. Yeah, yeah and who's volley. the commentator? Oh, um. Uh, I don't know if it's on Sky. Who's on the mic? Was it on Sky? Who's are those words? It would have been on Sky, wouldn't it? And he'd just been arguing with the referee. Yeah, he had yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's fuming. It's, it's a great guy. Just uh, waxing. Uh, boofed it in the top corner. <laughs> um, would Andy Gray still have been doing it then? It was Andy Gray. It was it Andy Gray. It was Andy Gray. It was we Andy Gray. <laughs> He's hit it. He's asked the question and the goalkeeper hasn't got an answer and he said that's going in and you don't know the answer. <laughs> okay, so number two. And I, and I expect you to get this one early. Okay. Torres. Iniesta's in the middle. Torres is trying to find him. It's broken for Fabregas. Now it's Iniesta. This is it. That's the goal. So that's, that's the, the World, World Cup. Cup. Yeah. yeah. World Cup final. And the commentator. Is it Peter Jory? No. Oh. I'll give you the second guess. Ian Drake? No, it Can is Guy Mowbray. Oh, is it? You're thinking of Ian Dark. Oh, okay. Ian <laughs> Drake. <laughs> okay, number three. History in itself for this new team, new territory, the last eight of the World Cup, and who knows where beyond there. Oh, that's, that's Tildesley against Colombia, isn't it? It's the right game. It's the wrong commentator. Who's it? Is it Drury? It's Drury. Oh, well done. Yeah, because Tilsey was on ITV. Drury did the other, the World Service, did he? Uh, I have a kind of... That's the one I enjoyed. Okay. <laughs> Number four. They've pulled the moment out of the hat again. Can you believe it? Chelsea will just not let go. This amazing season has another twist to it. 
the big man for the big occasion. Uh, Drogba's head against Munich. Yeah. And the commentator. Um, I'm trying to think back then, was it still on ITV? Was it on Sky? I think it was ITV. It was a midweek, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Oh, I don't know. Um, Quick game's a good game, lads. Yeah, it is, yeah. I agree. <laughs> Got, um, John Watson. Oh, God, no. I know, but I don't know <laughs> any more names of people. John Watson. I, I, right, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go Martin Tyler. Martin Tyler That's it is. That's the fellow. Yeah, yeah Bob would have smoked you with this one. <laughs> yeah. Good players. That Was it Barry Davis? Great commentator. What's he done? Well, he pretended to take it and then didn't seem to take it. And the referee has given a free kick the other way. What an extraordinary incident. Oh, that's um, that's that Man City-Arsenal game where Perez tries to do that Cruyff penalty. Yeah, that's the right and moment. I think, does it, is it distance who comes in and hoofs the ball? <laughs> I think it, I don't know, but I remember Danny Mills is squaring up to both of them, wow. absolutely fuming about it, like he's been properly disrespected. Yeah, well, that's Danny Mills, isn't it? Um, I and the commentator. The commentator? Is it? Alan Smith. Oh, I would have gone Jonathan Pearce. It was your friend of mine, John Motton. Oh, oh, that's a... Very good, lads. was none of them, the barber, they've got a fourth. Well, because it would have been obvious what it was. Yeah, yeah but we'd have had a chance to say it. We speak about Tramia a lot on this, don't we? We've we got do. Tramia coming up. And we've there. got a lot of Tramia coming up yeah. in this episode. Yeah. And I would just like to say for any Tramia fans listening, and we'll probably mention it again towards the end, the final pieces of this episode, which would normally be a quick fire are Nigel Adley talking a bit about both playoff finals and then some excerpts of his commentary from those from the second of the playoff finals. So, yeah, if you would like a little cry on a Monday morning, then then stay <laughs> listening to that because I think we've all shed a tear listening to it, to be perfectly honest with you. But we'll move on. We'll move on. And it may be obvious, but why did we want to speak to Nigel Adley? Well, first of all, obviously, we have the, the Trammy connection, don't we? And and we wanted to speak to him because commentators have become, like you said before, so ingrained in the game now. And they're becoming quite famous, I think, if anyone saw like, throughout lockdown. Clive Tills, he was on Twitter commentating on how to make a lasagna. Yes. And everyone loved it. It was thousands of retweets and thousands of likes. Yeah. And they're becoming so in, in, ingrained with the game. And it's... It's those memories, like you said. You know, we've got uh, is it Adam Summerton with with Norwood, uh, yeah. in in our playoff final, the first one. Um, so we wanted to speak to him. You know, he's a high profile commentator, and we just want to see what he was about. And and you know, all those years of going to games with his dad and and stuff, which you're going to hear in a bit. We wanted to learn a little bit more about it and see how what that industry is like, what that side of it's like. Yeah. It's it's a football's a weird sport where you get so many little industries that's like sort of yeah. go off it it's not just about the game yeah. you get the, the entertainment beforehand and then the commentators and the you know the everything else that goes with it so that's why we wanted to speak to him and it was a pretty good interview as well it was really yeah, nice. yeah. It, we got, it was really interesting and I think as you say commentators are people that we hear from a lot but maybe we don't see the process that goes into it so we got a little bit of insight into that and also a bit of insight into kind of his connection with football and where that where that's come from ryan we have a theme every week do you want to tell our listeners what this week's theme is football the family tradition um i think most people will be able to tell you the story of the first game and even if it's not your own family it's always on my friend's uncle talking to me on my friend's dad um, and he tells a nice story about how he started going with his dad 
and now how his son, uh, despite not living on the Wirral, supports Tramia. So we just thought it'd be it'd be nice theme today to to look at the history of going to the match with your family. Yeah, absolutely, and we'll touch a little bit more on that after the interview itself. You're listening to Man Marking, and we'll see you on the other side. So you you studied politics at university. Was was this the route you always wanted to go down, or did you did you fall into into commentary and, and into sports in itself? Um, I, th- I think it was. Um, when I went to university, it's very different to what what it is now for young people. You didn't really necessarily have to go with an idea of what you wanted to do. Whereas now it seems that university degree is the start of your working career there's a lot more um, vocation involved and people basically need to know what they want to do before they go to university I think it's something I, I always wanted to do and and when I went to university I, I wrote to the local radio station um, and offered to to go in and, and help out for nothing did that most Saturdays um, whether I was at university or or on holiday um, throughout my degree and and then I got a job at the end of it, and that, and that sort of put, put me on the on the road to doing what I wanted to do. And a lot of football fans, or well, any sporting fans for that matter, see commentary as one of the, like one of the best jobs in the world because they're they're going around and they're living and breathing the sport that they love. What what are the pressures, and what and what do you enjoy about doing that? Because I imagine a lot gets taken away. You can no longer be that fan in the room. You have to have your commentary hair down, and you maybe miss a lot of the sport that you'd like to watch because you, you it's taking you elsewhere. So, what are sort of the highs and lows of, of the job? Yeah, I think there are highs and lows. I mean, no doubt that in normal circumstances, it's a fantastic job, and and I entirely understand why it's a job that a lot of people would love to have and obviously there are plenty of experts on social media who think they can do the job better than you and people <laughs> are entitled to their opinion and, and that may be the case. Um, I think that when you do this job, I mean, look, I hardly see Premier play now, very, very rarely. Um, yeah. I see more watching the I follow when I'm not working than I do in, in the flesh because Saturdays, I'm usually working, or at least I hope to be working, because uh, as a freelance, you know that that that's your big day of the week yeah. um, on a regular basis. So I don't see Tramia play as much. I don't live um, in the northwest anymore um, because I was drawn towards the southeast because that's where much of the work is, and certainly as a, as a freelancer, it's where much of the work is. Uh, various production companies are all based around the M25, and 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 the reality is. That is where you have to be to, to make it easier to work. Um, and, and I think some football commentators, you know, try to be, you know, act as a fan. Uh, and I don't really think you can. Um, it wasn't much fun commentating on the United game as a Tramia yeah. fan this season. It was 5-0 at half time, But you, you have to do it as, as, as a professional. And, and while I think I, I did it for talk sport and, Anyone who cares is probably aware I'm a Tramia fan who listens to talk sport, but at the same time, you have to do the job professionally. I did the playoff final um, last season against Newport, and that was that was really hard because um, you had to be neutral. You do, I mean, obviously, 
you want you know who you want to win and most people would probably be aware of, of who you want to win but you you know you, you have to almost lock yourself away from that and, and, and park that at the side before you start doing the game and I felt I probably did that game in a fairly fairly neutral fashion and you know when when, when Jennings scored the winning goal I was as much talking about what it meant to Newport as as what it meant to Tranmere and I, and I think that's what what you had to do but I, I think that the longer you do this job and, and when you do it I think particularly as a as a freelancer who was self-employed you do lose some of the love for it it is a job you turn up you do the game you go home you put your invoice in and before that of course you do all the preparation so it, it, it is a job and I think it's a job that's that's very enjoyable and I think you have to realize that for, for somebody watching that game it's the most important game they've seen for some time so you you can't be indifferent but um, ultimately, do I care who wins between Eintracht Frankfurt and Basel, which is the most, most recent game I've done before um, the lockdown? Of course I don't. But yeah. you, you prepare for the game because you realise that you know, it, it matters to people. And I think you always have to bear that in mind. You then have to make a decision when you have downtime. Do I watch football? And I suppose your relationship changes with football when, when you're involved with it. Um, and would you say that was that was true in, in your case as well? Absolutely. I mean, I don't have a Sky or BT here in, in the family home because the reality is when I come home on a, on a Saturday night or, or any night in the week when I'll be doing a game, I don't want to watch more football. And uh, I mean, the last games that I've, I've seen, full 90 minutes on the television um, or on the, on, on the internet were, were, were Tramia games, watching on the iFollow. Um, yeah. And that is, that's the reality of it. You you, ha- you do have to get away from it. And, it, you know, it, obviously for everybody, it's a pastime and it's a passion. And, and it, it still is a passion. Um, you, you have to be passionate about football, though I don't think you could do the job properly. I, I think you have to really enjoy it and, and you have to, to realise that, as we go back to, you know, for somebody watching, this means every, everything to them. And particularly when I'm commentating on what they call the world feed, it goes around the world. Many people aren't fortunate enough to, to watch football in the flesh on a regular yeah. basis. This is as close as they get. So you you, you have to recognise that and you have to, to, to reflect that in, in the amount of work you put in and, uh, and the amount of professionalism you try and um, inject into the commentary. But uh, now, my, my likes away from the job, oh, watching football isn't one of them, but, that, but that's the reality of life, I suppose. I mean... Apart from going to go and watch Tranmere, and as we as we know, that's not been much fun at times this season. <laughs> true, true enough. And and how much research would go into um, a game, so, say to an international game such as uh, Frankfurt versus Baal? How much research do you do prior to, to the game? Yeah, quite a lot. Um, I've, I've probably got it here. If you can just bear with me, I can probably show you the notes from that game because I, I keep all the notes that I do after every game. Um, where are we? Here we go. Frankfurt's record against Swiss clubs, Basel's record against German clubs, um, who they played previously in the competition, um, what they've done this season, where they were in either Frankfurt in the Bundesliga or Switzerland in the in, in the Swiss League, um, and the overall record of, of German clubs against Swiss clubs. I also do player notes as well. Yeah. Got there. Um, and that is... Who's in the squad? A um, couple of notes on them: age, what nationality they are, um, 
who they played for previously, how many games they played in Europe, and and how many games you know they, they played this season, how many goals they might have scored. So, so there's a lot of work you do, um, and I've got you know files and files here of games that I've done this season. I mean, interestingly, during this um, current hiatus, I've been commentating on, on old games um, oh, wow. for UEFA. So um, the other day, I had to commentate on Ajax against Bayern Munich from 1995, um, when I wasn't commentating on it at the time. Um, you guys probably weren't born then, or you're very, very young. Um, <laughs> we were young. Yeah, I was in my 20s, so... I had to do the similar thing, sort of oh, go yeah. back to that, do the notes for who Ajax were playing around that time, how much, um, you know, Louis van Gaal, what he'd done. Obviously, it's, it's quite an interesting exercise because there's so many brilliant, famous players who are involved in that. But, so do you um, have a central database that you can access for that information or is it all Google searches and soccer base and those type of platforms? Yeah, it's a lot of the time. It is. Um, it's doing it on the internet. I mean, sometimes some of the big the big TV companies they have dedicated stat people yeah. who um, who generate reams and reams of, of information. I mean, if you go on on say um, the the Major League Soccer site in America, they have a an area which is available for the public, and they, and they they're, they're pretty much press kits for the media are on there, and they're about 50, 60 pages. Yeah. There's nothing you don't know about anybody. Um, yeah, I mean, I watch quite a little bit of um, NFL when the season's on and the stats in the American game are just ridiculous. They know everything about anything. Yeah. <laughs> it is so thorough. They it's do. And that, yeah. But I mean, we've used the websites. I mean, worldsoccer.net I use is very good. Um, soccer base, as you say. And, you know, I mean, in the old days, when I say the old days, um, sort of, you know, before the internet, people like John Motson and Barry Davis, they used to ring the manager and he'd get the team and they get their information that way. Yeah. Different. Now, you know, it's not that relationship that anybody has. Martin Tyler possibly has it. So it's all done by the internet. Yeah. And that's, a, I suppose, allowed for people to have a far wider reach and commentate on games that aren't just local to them um, or maybe within their own country. And and if you are doing a game abroad, do you physically travel or do you watch it and commentate on it as it's live? No, very rarely travel. Um, they yeah. do what most games are done, what they call off tube. Um, you're going to uh, a TV company or production centre and you'll sit in front of the screen and it's a screen probably not much bigger than Laptop, your laptop sometimes or sometimes you get huge HD screens depending on which company you're working at and you um, you do it what they call off tube and I think probably vast majority of overseas games are done off tube now and unless like with BT you've got the Champions League if it's an English team or a Scottish team playing abroad they will send but every other game is done at um, the BT headquarters because it's it's cost yeah because if somebody wants to send me to a game abroad, they've got to pay for me to get there. They've got to pay me for not just doing the game, but you know, maybe a day's travel, and it, and it just costs money. And have you done any major tournaments in the past, World Cups, European Championships? Yeah, um, yeah. I've been to every World Cup since 2002 um, in a variety of roles. Um, I've comment I commentated at 2006 and 2010 when I was still at... Um, Five Live, 
Um, I've been as a correspondent, um, 2002, Euros in 2004, um, and I went to cover England for TalkSport in 2016 and 2018, and I was due to go as a commentator uh, for the Euros this summer, but obviously that won't happen now, so presumably... How does that type of travel affect the, the family life? Is that something that's scheduled well in advance and, and is fine? Or do, is the travelling element of the role, maybe it's not as much anymore? Has that ever been something that's weighed you down at all? Yeah, I think it, it does. I mean, the World Cup in Russia, I was away for five weeks, um, which was longer than we all thought because there was a general assumption that England would, would go out in the quarterfinals and... Then, you know, then I would come home. But of course, they went all the way to the to the final weekend and I was away for five weeks. And it's hard on, on my wife, you know, got two children. And yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it's 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 difficult and you have to work around that. And even, you know, on a, on a weekly basis, you can be out three or four nights a week, you know, in a busy time. And then you might be traveling up to Burnley or Newcastle at a weekend and it just takes the whole day out and, and possibly some of the, you know, your whole weekend can be spent working and my wife can be here with the kids and it's, it's not easy. Yeah. I mean, she works in the media as well, so she understands and I'm sure when this current crisis passes and football resumes, everyone's going to be working every day of the week because they've got, they've got a lot of catching up to do. So, yeah. um, you know, it's, it is a strain, um, but it's, it's part of the job. And look, you know, there's strains on people, you know, particularly at the moment working in the NHS or, you know, working for a local council. So, I mean, I don't think you can ever whinge about that sort of demands put on the job. Um, but you just touched on that a little bit about the downtime due to this unique position we find ourselves in. Have you had the chance to sort of recharge the batteries or are you is it are you bored now and thinking, oh, it can get on top of me, but I'm ready to go again? <laughs> well, I think we're all worried. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's important to fill the days. Um my work all disappeared. Um, I had a schedule mapped out until the end of the season and then going to the Euros as well, and that all went. And yeah. you, know, you just have to deal with it. I've been fortunate to do a few bits and pieces here and there, commentating on some old games and you know getting paid for that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a worry. And I'm self-employed and I'm part of the 5%. We won't be getting any support from the government. Um, yeah. And, you know, which everyone will assume that I'm earning £200,000 a year, but that's not the case either. So, yeah, it's, it's a very worrying time, but, you know, everyone's in the same boat. It's not as if football's going on and I'm not doing it or, you know, I've been left out and everyone else is doing it. Everyone, it's a situation that's affecting everybody. And That's something we discussed with some of our um, previous interviews, the relationship that people have with football. And I think it's important to realise that there's more things important than it, but equally there's people in society that, that's all they have as well. And in talking like maybe from fans who maybe go to football every week and that's that's what they look forward to or they're quite isolated people and they, they have community schemes and a tram you do quite a lot. I think they had an interview with a guy who was 80 years old, had been going to games 70 odd years. And and those are the type of people that can suffer in, in, in these scenarios. And it, it's, a, it's important to realise what a positive vehicle football can be. Um, it's easy to focus on the negatives, but I think now we haven't got it. We're almost all realising just how important it can be. And I suppose that's the same for all sports. Um, football is just the obvious, the obvious one to discuss. Um, yeah. A lot of people rely on sport for an outlet as well. And I think that's yeah. 
something which is important. And I think that's something which which people um, maybe don't appreciate until it's not there. You know, um, sport is incredibly important to the people who rely on their incomes. But you know, I, I think that I think in many ways, well, whereas we're missing possibly the income more than the sport at the minute. For a lot yeah. of people, it does provide an outlet, not just watching it, but playing it as well. You know, people just having that companionship and a, and a football club, you know, can provide that. And I think Tramia do it very well. Um, and having spoken to Mark and Nicola Palios on a you know semi-regular basis, um, you know, they, they realised that, you know, the most important thing they had to do uh, when they arrived at the club, was to put it back at the heart of the community, and and I, and I think that a, m- a number of people are benefiting from that. I think the club will continue to offer that sort of support where they can, but it, it's a very difficult time. One of the questions we want to ask is uh, now more than ever, there's there's more women working in football, um, and there's been a bit of a culture change. But often because we're in this area with sorry era with social media. They seem to be fighting a constant uphill battle to to justify their position to be on television with men. Um, has that changed to more more positive one? Having more women involved been a refreshing one for you. And what can we do to sort of improve um, equality on our televisions? Well, I think it was inevitable, and I think that it's right. I think um, the the issue was that, that, that there was huge inequality in the first place, and. I think a number of very good and and, and very capable uh, female broadcasters have suffered over many many years. There are only very few on the television, the likes of, of, of Sue Barker and, and Claire Balding, and and I think that it was seen as almost a novelty at times. I mean, I, I know Jackie Oatley very well, and I was actually at the first game she did for Match of the Day. Um, it was Fulham against Blackburn back in two thousand and seven. I was covering the game for Five Live that day, and she was there for Match of the Day. And it was an absolute circus. Um, and she would admit, and she does admit, she wasn't ready to do it. She hadn't actually done radio commentary on Five Live, but she was a victim of BBC Sport management at the time, desperate to say they, they got their first female commentator on Match of the Day. And she did it, and she did. In the circumstances, she did really, really well, but it was an absolute circus. And she was given other opportunities, but ironically, by the time... She was probably really ready and really um, trained up to do it on a regular basis. They stopped her doing it, which just made the nonsense of the whole thing. And I think that she really took a bullet for, figuratively speaking, for the female commentators who are working on, on the BBC now and elsewhere in the media. And, and I think they are treated a lot more fairly, and I think rightly, because people should be given opportunities on, um, on the level playing field. And I, and I think it's... It's typical of sport in many ways that it's, take, that it's taken this long for, for the situation to be where it is now. Yeah, there's almost that feeling and it's, it's a bizarre one that men seem to find jobs on like the Women's World Cup come by with, with, with little or no comment. But when it's the other way around, there seems to be a lot of comment on it, which just seems like a bizarre stance to have on anything because if you're an expert, it doesn't really matter. Um but that doesn't seem to be the opinion you get. I mean, we shouldn't probably entertain the opinions too much, but it always seems to be what would they know about the men's game? Well, equally, a lot of journalists and commentators aren't ex-professionals themselves, um, and it shouldn't really come into it. So I suppose it's about changing that stigma that's attached to it and an opinion and 
it will it, take time, but I think it, the last Women's World Cup was so well received and so well watched that hopefully more women's sport on telly should help people feel more comfortable, confident in getting into those circles. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually commentated on a lot of women's football, um, both in the WSL and, and England games for the BBC for a number of years, but I actually got moved on because they wanted female football commentators to do it, which I suppose is is the way it goes. But yeah, right. A, a former professional footballer or, or current professional footballer, and I know I know personally people like Rachel Brown Finnis. Um, I've worked with Natasha Dowie, um, uh, Jilly Flaherty, who's a current player, is a really good pundit. Their views are equally as valid as anybody who's played men's game and, and I would argue um, in some cases they actually do more um, preparation and offer better value than, than some male pundits who are currently around and I think that they've they've actually helped to, to raise standards and maybe raise people's games which is a good thing all around but I think it's, um, it's, it's the way we are moving forward now and I think that um, there should be a mix both covering men and, and, and women's football there should be um, at some stage in the future, we will reach a stage where it, it, it won't seem um, odd to to some people. Some people will always complain, and female commentators and female pundits will always get somebody on Twitter saying, "You know, get back in the kitchen." But there will always be idiots, and you're not going to change that. And, and social media gives them a voice. I think because what we're all striving for is is equal outcome, and, and sometimes we focus on equal opportunity. And that sometimes results in maybe forced opportunities in a way. And we've seen quite the controversial Rooney rule that was in the NFL. I think that's been brought into football. What What is sort of your stance on that? Do you think that takes away from somebody's credentials by bringing their sex, gender or race into it? Well, I think nobody likes um, getting a job because they, they feel they are benefiting or, or not benefiting from, from labels. And, and I think that People who, who get jobs in football and, and in other sports, I think, you know, deserve them. Um, Chris Powell is somebody I've, I've spoken to at length since he, he got his job with England, of course. Um, he, he was brought in as, as the FA, um, tried to get more um, BMA, BAME um, candidates and people involved throughout their age groups, both across the, the male and female game. Chris Powell is massively qualified to coach at international level. He's played international football for a start, and his CV stacks up with, with many other people working at the FA. Yeah. So has he had to be, be picked um, to fulfil a quota to get that job? Many people could argue yes, but does he deserve that job? Absolutely. And is he doing a good job? Then, then, then he certainly is. Do you ever feel kind of overwhelmed by the game? Um. <laughs> I think it would be hypocritical of me to say there was too much football because if there's a lot of football, then I tend to get paid for covering more of it. Um, but I think that we, you know, we, we have reached a, stat, a saturation point and that's why um, it's been so much of a shock for everyone to not have any football or any live football at all to cover. I, I think that um, the calendar, um, as it was until very, very recently, is just full to bursting point. There, there is no wriggle room to put in extra competitions. So we've seen obviously Liverpool have to play two games in 24 hours and on different continents earlier this year. And I, I think that there's a recognition that there has to be uh, more of a break for the players. And I think more of a break for everybody because there is a, 
an argument for saying less is more at times. And it, it used to be an event, live football on the television, which is why millions and millions of people used to watch it. Now you can watch a game, you can watch two or three games every day of the week from somewhere around the world. And it's, it's no longer special. And I think that, um, that when we, we do emerge from this crisis and, and go back to some sort of normality as far as football is concerned, I, I think that they will look at the calendar and think things have got to change and, and we have to find a way of protecting the players and, and, and protecting the product. And that doesn't necessarily mean making as much money as possible. Just kind of shifting focus a little bit now, obviously... This podcast has come around because we're, we're looking to kind of explore um, mental health and men's mental health, and, and we we are all uh, football fans. The, the, the myself and Ryan and, and Anthony, the other lads who's, who's doing the podcast with us, um, and we all we've all thought football is a, a really good conduit for for starting this this type of conversation, and it's all kind of been centered around men's uh, reluctance perhaps to, to talk about their emotions and their feelings and in your opinion do you think that there is a problem with 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 that with, with men talking about their about their emotions and their feelings i think so because it's it's something that you know people as a whole are not are not encouraged to talk about um and it's, it's there's a lot of machismo and there's a lot of a lot of bullshit about um about that sort of area and you know, people who are encouraged to work in the past were encouraged to, to bottle things up and just get on with it and show that stiff upper lip and, and just carry on. And I'm sure that, you know, it's many people died in the past or fell by the wayside in the past and, and mental health was an issue, but it, it just wasn't treated as that. You know, people were seen to be soft or, or seen to be not made of the right stuff. And I think that it's very important that people do talk about it. And I think now, um, in, in the current situation, people have the time to talk about things. They, they, they have the space as well. And, and I think it's very important that you know, people that you know, whether you're worried about them or not, it, it's good to give them a call and have a conversation because if you don't, then they may be missing something, particularly at the moment, because if, if people are isolated, um, even if you can't speak to somebody face-to-face, you should pick up the phone or send them a text and, and see how things are because in the past we weren't encouraged to talk about anything like this and, and I think people suffered from it. Yeah, and I, I, I think you, um, obviously you, you, you're, you would have been brought up in a, in a, a different generation to, to myself and to, and to Ryan. And do you think that there is a, a change in that kind of societal attitude towards, towards men and, and the way men are, you know, kinds of the, the, the pressure, the way the men are supposed to behave? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I mean, my, my father passed away um, about uh, 15 months ago and he never discussed anything um, about his, you know, his background or his, um, what happened in his life before, you know, he, he met my mother and, and um, sleep grew up. He, he obviously bottled up a lot of very difficult issues, it, it turned out. And it's only... Often you only find out you find more about people after they've died when you talk to people who were around them earlier on in their lives and you and you discover you know things which may be a pieces of the jigsaw and, and, and things that help to make sense of other things. And you know, he never discussed issues with me and, and some very private and some very painful issues, um, as it turns out. 
So I, I think that now, I, I think we are more open. Um, and I think you have to be, uh, because life now is so congested and we're, we're bombarded with messages on social media. We're bombarded with attempts to find out what we think all the time. And, and they're not necessarily in a positive way. I, I think that um, people just need to take time now to, to, to do things for themselves, whether it's going the whole hog and having therapy or having some sort of counselling. I think it's important that, that people shouldn't be afraid to ask for that. As a, an industry, it's, it's obviously very linked to ideas of masculinity and, 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 as you say, man up, stiff up a lip, those sorts of things. Have you seen that type of environment change over the course of your career or is it still very much the type of place that's, that's not open to talk about emotions and feelings? Um, well, I think, to be honest, we, we don't really know. Um, because I think we're a lot we're a lot further away from football now than we were maybe 25 years ago when I first came into to reporting on it. Then you had personal relationships with um, players, um, with managers, with people around football clubs, and you, you got much more of an insight about how people felt about things or away from the microphones, away from the football pitch. Now, um, unless you have really good um, long-term contacts or maybe whether you, if you if you cover a smaller club um, you, the shutters are down you know now everything is is airbrushed you know footballers I mean, I'm lucky enough to interview England players on a regular basis face to face and when you you look at a footballer you, we, we often get this airbrushed view of them as these sort of superheroes looking handsome looking tanned you know looking looking like somebody that, that everybody wants to be. But often when you sit down with footballers, when they're off, well, not, not off duty when they're playing for England, but when they when they come and do a media session, you look at them and you think, blimey, you know, you're quite scrawny. You've not got the best skin in the world. Some of them look ill because they're constantly on the edge physically, particularly mid-season, that they're putting their body through their absolute hell at times. Um, and they, they look like very different people. And I think that um, one of the, the things that, that Gareth Southgate did uh, when he became the England manager and, and got established was he, he tried to encourage um, the England players to to get their stories out there, to, to try and reconnect with the media and, and therefore reconnect with the supporters because whether people like it or not, often we are the conduit for the supporters to get you know in, in information. And you, know, you can talk to someone like Danny Rhodes. I mean, he is a fairly open book. And, and he will tell you how he feels and he will tell you about issues that, that he's suffered about. And, 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 you know, I happened to do an interview with him one day and wasn't expecting it at all. He suddenly, suddenly announced that he's been having counselling to help him over an injury. And he, that's not what you expect from footballers. And it's not what football clubs particularly want you to learn about because they do try and, you know, they're trying to promote a brand. They're trying to promote their message all the time, you know, through social media, you know, the players are always everybody's mates and, you know, they're always putting it in for the fans and they're always really sorry we lost today, better luck next week, we go again, you know. In a lot of cases, players don't feel like that. Players have got other things going on in their lives that we don't know about and maybe in the past you could learn about that but now it, it is very difficult to do that and I think it's, it's disappointing and at a time when probably people are 
are talking about mental health and talking about issues even more. Football clubs seem determined to put their players in their gilded cages and just promote the fact they're great when they may not be feeling great. You um, you did a, 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 I from doing some uh, some research for this interview, I found a tweet that you did back in uh, June of 2018 where you wrote that people who say money eases depression don't understand depression. Um, and we spoke when we spoke with um, Jimmy Curitan earlier today. He said um, that he often he often feels as though people believe that footballers aren't allowed feelings. You know, how can you how can you be sad when you earn X amount a week? Um, do you think there's a certain perception of because footballers earn so much money that maybe they they shouldn't be allowed to have issues because they don't understand what it's like to be a you know in quotes normal person? Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and, you know, particularly footballers in this current generation who've been earning, you know, millionaire salaries before they've really kicked the ball for the first team. And, you know, look, there are some footballers who are there are who are arseholes. And, you know, they, they love the bling, they love the big cars, they love flaunting their wealth. And maybe they are quite vacuous. But... but Often that's a, maybe that image is projected to hide something else. We we don't know. I mean that 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 is. Yeah, I think that's becoming more of an issue. And you know we hear from footballers now, usually when they're coming out of the game, that you know yeah I was doing this that and the other, but I was racking up you know a quarter of a million pound gambling debts, or I was addicted to this. You know I was going home, you know drinking a bottle of scotch. You know there's a, there's a footballer called David Cottrell, a Welsh international. Um, um, he's mm. currently, um, you know, uh, I think, um, doing work in rehab and doing work with AA. He set up his own his own um, foundation, and I listened to a podcast he did, and you know, he and nobody knew. You know, people who played with him, teammates, didn't know that he had a massive drinking problem and was clinically depressed because, again, he put that front up. You know, he would go and play football, and you know, be one of the boys, and you know. There wasn't room, and there wasn't time, and there wasn't the, you know, there wasn't the environment for him to actually say, "Look, I'm really struggling here. Someone's got to help me." And you know, it, he's not alone. And there are, I'm sure, there are footballers now in the Premier League earning, you know, six figures every single week. But it, it doesn't guarantee you that happiness. Depression's an illness, and you know, you can you can be depressed um, even though you appear to have everything because. If you're not right in the head, then everything means nothing in, in, in some cases. And, and they have their own pressures to deal with as well. Somebody always wants a piece of them, you know, whether it's agents or whether it's the football club wanting them to do something. Or and maybe, you know, things aren't going well for them. And they're under the spotlight all the time. If, you know, I, I don't know Harry Kane personally at all. I, I speak to him on a semi-regular basis um, and I don't know what his private life is like at all. But say if someone like Harry Kane goes two games without a goal, people are on his back. And that, and that can't help. You know, you, you've got to be pretty strong um, mentally to, to deal with that. And uh, I think probably he is. But, you know, f- footballers get criticised all the time and, and, and people in football get criticised all the time. And, and, you know, not every character is, is able to brush it off. So, some people, I'm sure, take it home with them and it affects them very badly. And in that situation, it, it doesn't matter how much you earn. It, you know, if you if you are struggling mentally, you've got to have help. And, and I think probably the, the more you earn, 
the, the less people um, seem to believe that, that you need that sort of help. It's interesting that you should say that about, um, obviously, Harry Kane, if he, if he goes a couple of games without scoring a goal and people are on his back. But I, 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 mean, I don't know about Harry Kane's state of mind, but I'm using that as an example. But if yeah, yeah, well, no, I, I, people I, are on the knife edge, they're either great or they're terrible. There's nothing in between. You know? Yeah, exactly. And I, I often wonder, it. I mean, people seem to be a... Um, uh, football, obviously, is, is an entertainment source and is something that is there for people to enjoy and, and, and make people happy and all the rest of it. And, and I often wonder if you see a lot of people, and, and, and I, I, this podcast is obviously about men, and, and I would say in football, in stadiums, online, football seems to make a lot of men extremely angry and upset. Do you think there's an, an issue that men have with their relationship with, with football? Do you think that's a healthy relationship? that a lot of people have got with, with the game? No, I don't think it is. Maybe it's a relationship with social media. Um, because I think people got angry and upset about football before there was Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and everything else. Um, but maybe they left it at the ground. Maybe, or maybe they left it in the pub an hour after the game and, and moved on and, and, and got on with the rest of their lives. Um, I think now people do let things linger. And, you know, look, we can be guilty of it ourselves, or certainly I can be, you know, spending too much time on social media, you know, obsessing about something, getting involved in arguments that you don't have to get involved in, um, you know, and then, then it gets abusive. And, you know, at that point, you usually have to pull away because, you know, people can be abusive to me, but if I'm abusive to them, then, you know, it's people can turn it around and say, well, you know, you're talk sports and Arjun Adderley or, or whatever, and, you know, Call me whatever, and, it, and it's it's not a good look. So you know, I think a lot of people I know are on social media for that reason because they just don't need the aggravation. Um, and, I, and I think that you know, football is an, an incredibly angry place on, on, on social media, and, and some of the stuff you see is is absolutely disgusting. Um, you know, and we we've had you know death threats or people wishing others children have cancer, and you know, I mean. It, and the people who are writing this, they don't really believe it, but they get they get whipped up into, you know, this sort of frenzy. And, and you know, you, if that's the case, throw away the phone because you shouldn't be like that. And you know, there are people on on social, or there are people who have been on social media who've ended up, you know, getting um, a criminal record, losing their jobs, losing their livelihoods, losing relationships because. You know, they've been stupid on social media. And whereas you could say, well, you know, you know the risks. And if you do that, you are stupid. Of course, you are stupid to do it. But, you know, people just have these triggers now. And, and it, you know, it, it doesn't take much to turn normal people into idiots and, and, and far worse than that. And I think at times, you know, for, maybe, is football the cause of that or is football the vehicle for that? I mean, it's, it's, I suppose it depends on your point of view. Yeah, I think that's really, I think that's, that's, that's the key question, really, isn't it? I, we we when we were coming up with the um some of the themes and what have you for for this for the podcast, we had a discussion around whether you know some of the ways that people behave at a football match. If you behave like that anywhere else, it would be completely unacceptable. But then again, the flip side of it is, if people need that space to get that anger out, and that environment provides that. You know, is there a healthy element of that as well? I don't know. It's 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 a it's a, a strange kind of dichotomy, really, with with that type of thing. 
It is. And I think that, um, uh, I think there are two different things. I think at a football ground, you know, maybe that is the place to, to, to get it out. I mean, my dad was a copper, uh, upstanding member of the community. But some of the language he used to come out with at Tramway Games was absolutely appalling. Um, not, not directed at anyone, just in general, because because uh, when we when I first started going, we were bottom of Division Four with crowds of twelve hundred, and you know it was it was pretty grim. Um, but and I think that you know people did use it as an outlet. But but at the same time, going back to what you said about social, um, you know, the social aspect of it and and depression and, and, and mental health. If you shouted it, if you're in a crowd of a thousand and you shout at somebody and say they're crap or, or worse, they hear that. And, you know, surely it's, it's going to have some sort of effect, you know. And if the smaller the crowd, the more amplified the, the criticism is in, in some ways, if it's on an individual basis. And is it, is it good that footballers get a barrage of abuse because they simply make a mistake? Of, of course it isn't. But... Maybe maybe football isn't the right environment to um, for people to go and let off steam. Maybe you need to go on a you know ten mile run or, or or go to a boxing gym and and hammer a bag for an hour. Maybe that's better, you know, uh, than going going to a ground and finding yourself incredibly angry. But unfortunately, now it goes onto social media. I mean, look, Tranmere lose a game as they have done recently until. Uh, until this recent revival, you know they, they put up the final score. You know, Tramia nil, Portsmouth two. Thanks for your support. The answers, the replies to it, you know, sack Mellon, announce relegation. They're all crap. You know, and some, you know, some really abusive stuff about individual players and, and Mickey Mellon, the manager. And I'm, you know, I'm sure Mickey Mellon's not on social media for that for that reason. And it can't help. It can't help you on a Monday morning if you go in knowing that you know people on social media seem to hate you. But, you know, people do it. But I've always made a point, maybe it's slightly different for me because, you know, I do work in the media. But having a go at individuals doesn't get you anywhere. But I think that, that social media gives people the opportunity to, to really hammer individuals. And there have been Tramia players who've, who've had that, you know, for some time. And, you know, I know, I know Norwood's been getting plenty of stick down at Ipswich from their fans. And what does it do for somebody? It's counterintuitive, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there used to be a view, I think, that, you know, if you booed, if you, you know, I mean, football managers probably took the view that if you gave someone a bollocking all the time, they'd be better. I think you've got to be, you've got to be subtler than that now. And I think you have to be, um, you, you know, management is very different now. And, and I think that players, I think players now don't respond to, to harsh criticism. If they're not going to respond to it from, a somebody who basically decides whether they go in the team or not it's certainly not going to help them if they get it from the crowd yeah no I agree I, I, the, the, with uh, Trammy this season I think and, and Ryan and I have spoken about this a lot we we, we go every week and, and I think for us as we started supporting the, the both sports sporting Trammy about the, the same sort of time and you know in the time we've supported them there's been three relegations no promotions blah 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 and then a few years back obviously we come out of the National League, we got promoted again. And they were, I think Ryan had, had agreed with me on this, is that they were two of the best days of our lives, even outside the football. And the, some of the, the memories that were made from those days will live with us forever. Um, and 
for those group of players and for that manager and, and the club that brought us some of those times to be getting stick only sort of six months later, it, I found personally quite upsetting to see that those people that have that have that have given us some of the, the great times in our club's history and it doesn't take a great deal and they're getting stick. Yeah, I'm, and I agree. And I'm, you know, I was, I mean, to be honest, I was back in Gary Bradley back in the non-league days, and a lot of people disagreed then um, because, and history is, I wouldn't say it's proved him right, but you know, the team that has um, has uh, given you those great times is as much Gary Brabham's team as it is Mickey Mellon in terms of the players he brought in, um, and I think that it, it doesn't help. And I think now. But that social media, you know, people make an instant judgment, you know, and and there's a stream of negativity directed straight after a game. And I know people are frustrated and people have every right to be frustrated, but you know, the bigger picture never occurs on on um, on social media. And I mean maybe that's that is part of the problem. And and the players who got two successive promotions, you know, deserved an opportunity to have a crack at at the higher level. If if some of them haven't been good enough. Well, at least they've tried, and they've tried, and, and maybe they need to be moved on. And I think that that's beginning to happen. But I think that there has to be loyalty um, in football, and I think you know, Tramia have shown loyalty to a lot of people, um, and you know, I think that's a good thing. And, and as I say, if the, if the season resumes and they go down, it's because they've not been good enough to play at this level, and possibly it came too soon. But it's not a disaster. Um, football, to, look, Christ, it's not a disaster. I mean, thousands of people dying due to a, a global pandemic is a disaster. Um, but I think, I don't know, maybe the older you get, you get more perspective. But it's, if we end up in League Two next season, it is not the end of the world. Um, you know, ending up in the non-league probably felt like the end of the world. And, and certainly it was, I think it would be easier to get back out of League Two than it would be to get back um, into the football league in the first place. But, I was just going to say, I, I drove in this terrible run we were on where I think it was 11 wins. I think I said to you several times, Dan, one win changes everything. And one win became three in a week. And it's unfortunate, really, is uh, while players do get a lot of stick, I feel like managers don't aren't allowed to have a bad season. If you're a, a, a striker, take Nord, for example, he's got has five seasons getting 20 goals and then he has a bad season you'd still give him a chance the next season or he'll find another club. But the second, the manager finds himself 11 games without a win. Suddenly, he's not good enough for this level. They're bringing up what, like Mellon, for example. People are saying he failed at Shrewsbury, which he didn't. Um, and it's really weird because you're not going to sack a player mid-season. You, they might go out on loan or stay in the reserves and come back into the frame. But with managers, there just seems to be this real quick decision that they aren't good enough. And then you can start seeing that. I think Mickey ended up playing a lot of games where he was too scared to try and win the game rather than, uh, like I think, self-end away, his substitutions. You can see it starts affecting a manager because they're that conscious of the reaction from the crowd that maybe getting the draw is better than going for the win and losing. And I think um, momentum is everything in football, positive and negative. And it only takes one win to turn negative momentum positively and all of a sudden as you've touched on Nigel three wins in a row and with the greatest team ever again and Mickey Mellon's the king of Birkenhead and I don't it just amazes me how quickly the the good can be undone by by a 10-11 game losing streak 
Um, and I think it's something that's got to change. I think we're quite fortunate at Tramby that we've got an owner that sees that um, and doesn't buckle under the pressure from the crowd. I think you give Rob Edwards a little bit of time when he came in, although he wasn't his man. Arguably gave Mickey Adams too much time. He gave Brabham at least a full season and more. And I think he's done the same with Mellon. And we're quite fortunate in that in that regard because too many chairmans now would just buckle to the pressure and sack the manager. And there is actually, if you look at the statistics, it doesn't actually prove to be a great decision. In the short term, you might have a run of results you put together. But in the long term, you, you end up falling to the level you're rather going to fall at anyway. Do you think there's a um, an element nowadays with... Um... Because so much of, of football and so many football fans are, you think, so short-term, as you say, it only takes a, a few defeats and people start turning on on, on managers and players that have, that have done so much good that it, the pressure that comes on the back of that is, is, is quite unhealthy, both for, for players, for managers and for, and for fans of, of the game. Yeah, I think, you know, we are very short-term now and... I mean, I remember the promotion season um, under Johnny King back in 1989 when um, we went up from the fourth division to the third division. We made a pretty slow start to that season. Um, I think we got three points in the first four games. Now, people will be saying, King out, you know, load of rubbish, you know. This season, we were, you know, we're promotion favourites. We made a really poor start with 19th in the table. You know, get get rid of him. At the time, there was absolutely no talk of that, and you know, there was no pressure on the manager to to get things right. Certainly not publicly. There may have been um, in the dressing room and in the boardroom, but it just wasn't part of the the narrative then to, to, to change the manager. And, and you look back, far fewer managers got the sack then than they do now. And I'm you know I'm sure it is because of that short-termism and maybe you know it comes down to money as well because chairman now and owners are so scared of, of being relegated and losing that chunk of money that comes with that that they'll do anything to try and you know, preserve themselves because they've mortgaged themselves up to the hilt with the wage bill do you think um the the the, the football's sort of direct relationship with social media has got a lot to answer for for that yeah i, I think it is because now um you know football clubs um, I mean, they do put the shutters down in terms of uh, the media, and they and they try and um, you know get their own message out there. And there's a lot of in-house media now to try and control the message. But you know they are very aware of of, of what that the fans think now. Whereas before they they probably weren't and probably didn't care. And and I'm sure that you know owners look at the reaction on social media and, and try and gauge the general mood. But the general mood isn't on social media. That's at the stadium. But you know, the people on social media are often representing only a fraction of the of the overall fan base. But I think sometimes they take decisions based on what they see either on Twitter or Facebook. I often think as well, it almost leads to, and it goes back to that thing we were talking about before about the way that the the football clubs try to portray their footballers to to, to fans, uh, and and it then almost tacitly allows fans to treat footballers and managers as though they're not human. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean I think they are they are airbrushed um, by social media and by football clubs to to have this sort of uh, otherworldly quality. And you know, they're not. They're human beings like everybody else. And as I say, they've got spots. They often look knackered. They, you know, they're all they're all often playing injured. 
Um, and, you know, they are right on the edge of, of sort of physical well-being at times. But that, that's the life that they have certainly during the season. And while they'll, they'll appear in advertising campaigns, you know, cake with makeup and with a gleaming torso and a, an attractive girl on their arm, you know, that's not the reality. But that's the painted reality that we often are encouraged to, to buy into. And, you know, football clubs, you know, do that. I mean, it's inevitable that everyone's, everybody's mate. There are relationships within any, any football dressing room, just as there would be within any office. Not everybody gets on. I mean, famously, uh, going back in history, um, Teddy Sheringham and Andy Cole hated each other at Manchester United, but they went out on the field and they performed and they, they did what they had to do for Sir Alex Ferguson, but they didn't have a relationship off the field. Um, and I'm sure there are you know, players in every dressing room that just don't get on with people. But they go out on the field and they'll, you know, they'll, be, they'll do the job that they have to do because they're being paid to do that. And, but but if, you, if you look at um, uh, a club's social media feed, everybody's, everybody's mate and everybody loves each other. And it's, it's not reality, but we're invited to buy into that. And, you know, I don't think it, it, it helps people in, in the long term, you know, because, because when things don't go well, every, things can turn very quickly and, and football clubs are still pumping out this air of positivity when, when the reality is, is something quite different. Welcome back. I'm still joined by Ant and Ryan. So, as promised before the interview, we're going to have a little bit more of a discussion about some of the things that Nigel kind of talked about in his interview there. And what we kind of wanted to focus on was your early memories of going to match, the thing that made you fall in love with it, why you still go today. So, Ant, I'm looking over at you. You're looking pensive. So I want to know your first memory of going to match. Yeah, I don't know why I'm looking pensive because I can remember it pretty clearly. It was... Um... <laughs> Jermaine Pensive. Yeah. <laughs> it was Tramia vs Oxford United at home around, it was 1999, 5th of April, which is like four days after my birthday, so I was around six. Was this a birthday present? Must have been. I, it must have been. I didn't know what, what day a, it was. What I a treat. I, I can't remember what day it particularly was, but apparently it was the 5th of April, so yeah, it makes sense now. But I went. I actually didn't go with my dad, I went with my mum, and I think... If I'm right, Kenny Iron scored two penalties, I think. And we think we the score says two two. I remember two goals. Like, um, I I don't remember a, a lot about it. I remember the goals. I remember the goal music. Mm. I feel good. Na, 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 na. Which yeah, it's good. Um, <laughs> I remember sitting. We were sitting in the Johnny King stand. Um, I just remember being that close to the players. Yeah. I remember going, oh, this is actual football match. And I think when you're a kid, you you sort of pretend that like you you're playing football for all these like big stars and stuff yeah. and I was like well, what's in Tramion and Kenny Irons like but yeah. not that he's not a big star um, but yeah it was it was good I think I actually went with my next door neighbour Barry who we've been to before on the podcast and um, I don't know whether that was his first uh, game but it was definitely mine yeah um, so yeah it was it was an enjoyable game I, I can't remember like you know you can sort of like remember smells and stuff like yeah. that. I, can't, I can't remember much of that but I just remember sitting in that Johnny King stand and I remember oh, I remember being quite happy that there was goals going in and stuff. So, so you were over on Butter Road side for your first game, Yeah, you? yeah, yeah, which was quite nice. There wasn't, I can't remember there being many people there. I don't, I remember going a Bumper crowd, mate. Yeah, Bumper I remember, crowd. I remember going a few days, um, a few years after that. 
I remember it being a bit different, like all the cup games and stuff, and they were like mm. chocker. There were, there were so many people there, and, you know, you had to sit in your own seats and stuff like that. So it was a lot different then. But uh, yeah, no, that that first game, two goals, two two draws. Can't complain. No, you can't as long as you don't lose. You know, right? and you were yeah. hooked. I was, yeah, it took me a couple of more years to go consistently, um, but yeah, uh, pretty much liked them since then. Yeah, superb. Ryan, same question to you, mate. First time you can remember going to match. Do you know what? I remember going to an Oxford game, and I don't know if it would have been the same one or not, which is very weird. Maybe we sat next to each other. Um, but the, <laughs> the school I went to uh, used to get tickets. You used to be able to get, like, I think they gave out tokens or something to, the to like, a year group. And I remember an Oxford game, and I also remember Huddersfield game, uh, which was a Tuesday night. And I just said to my dad, oh, can we go with a tram you're playing? And he took me with me, mate. Um, but my dad never used to really take me the games. He would have if I asked. But I just lived close enough to the ground to see the floodlights on like a, a match day, and mm. you could hear you could actually hear the stadium, and it was just like a, a boyhood curiosity. Really, I was playing footy in the street, and I'd just see people walking past going the match, and after a while, I was like, I want to go there. Because um, I, I remember like when you were a kid, like five, six, family members would get you like Liverpool tops and stuff, but I never really got that into it. And mm. then the second I went to Tram, yeah, I think like I always sat in the cop. Apart from my first ever game, which was the Huddersfield one, if it wasn't the Oxford one, which I know is bad, I don't remember. I sat in the main stand for that. But um, I think being a kid and you see people singing and there's always a drum and stuff, you just get that giddy, don't you? And you're kind of like, what's going on here? I've never seen You say like it, we don't get giddy yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> years on. So yeah, and then I went when we went to Wembley in 2000, actually went with my mum, because I went with my friend and his dad was working away or something, so his mum went and my mum went. Um, and I just remember... After after that Wembley game, I think I got my first season ticket, which is crazy, really, isn't it? Because I imagine a lot of people in that boat who got hooked by them cup runs and yeah. stuff touched on before. So, yeah, sort of late nineties, early two thousands, first started going. So the one thing I do remember about going to those like early games when I was a kid was that I used to train at football on a Saturday like morning, like late morning. And I yeah. used to have to get used to have to leave early at like two o'clock, come home, which was basically over the park. And then I remember going and my dad and my mum were just, because I used to go with my next door neighbour, Barry, and he just ended up wrapping myself up in like all yeah. these layers. <laughs> yeah. I just remember going, I've never worn so many clothes yeah. ever. I've got this like, you know them old school Umbro training jacket things? Yeah. I've got one of them on, I've got a scarf on, I've got on. It's like, Sounds oh. a similar get up you wear to match these days. You know that Oxford game? Was that a midweek one, do you think? Or like a, an Easter one where it was like, might have been a Monday or a Friday? If it was the 5th of April, it could have been like a Monday, yeah. Because that's what I remember going to an Oxford game and I was felt like it was a day off but it was in the week, if you see what I mean. I feel like it was like an early evening. So suppose you've got a busy schedule at that time of life, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. You know, when you're about seven, yeah. so it's really, really tricky to Just work around your, your diary. <laughs> With me cars, <laughs> Jeremy Clarkson or something. No, good old Meccano set at home, yeah. mate. <laughs> when, I, when, when I was younger, when I first went we to Mash... Anyway, thanks for listening. <laughs> no, because well, we obviously all started going around the same sort of time. And it, would, it was that the first season that I went, or the first season that I remember going regularly was the Wavington Cup final season. And I think the first game that we went to that season was the one of the first games of the League Cup. But we played, I, I think it might have been Blackpool at home. And I think we won 2-1 or something. Anyway, that was the first one I remember going. But I think prior to that, and I don't even know it was the same season, my dad basically used to go all the time. And then it got to a point where he couldn't afford to keep going. 
that like they basically between him and my mum, they were like, we just can't afford to keep going at that time. I can't remember what the scenario was, but they basically didn't have enough money to do something and go to match. So my dad was like, well, I just have to give up going to match then. And this is my dad had been going since he was. My dad used to hitchhike through the tunnel to go to Everton when he was like four. And then they'd sometimes four. be a, not four. That's, in, that's ambitious, isn't it? <laughs> fourteen. It was fourteen yeah, okay. when he was like fourteen. Him and his mates hitchhike through the tunnel, walk up Scotty Road, and go to Everton. Mm. And then on days when Everton were, in, were playing away, then they'd walk down to Prenton Park and get into Prenton Park. And then they'd sometimes be able to get into Anfield. I think like back in the day, you could just like turn up oh, at a ground yeah, and get in, work. couldn't you? So that was that. So that was my dad used to go for like fifty years or whatever. And then it got to the point where he was like, "We can't afford to go anymore." Blah blah blah. blah. So we didn't go for a couple of years. And then he was in. There used to be a comic book shop on Woodchurch Road near town, and he was in there. And I and 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 I must have been maybe five or six at the time. Were you hitchhiking at this point? <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I was driving the, the, the fans bus. Four, mad. Anyway. So he's in this this comic book shop, and uh, he sees all the the people walking back from the game or to the game. I think we have, it was whatever season we played Bolton on the first day or the last day. It was it was like a Bolton on the last day stopped them get hundred points. I think it was that game. So we either saw him walking to the ground or away from the ground. The details are sketchy. He was four at the time, <laughs> and uh, and he was like, oh, I really want to start going the match again. So he basically was like, Oh, Dan's old enough. So he basically said to me, Mum, that I'd been going to him, can we go to the match? Can you take me to the match? Can you take me? So he used me as like a bargaining tool to get them. And my mum was like, oh, well, we'll, you know, we'll take Dan and if he likes it, then we'll see if we can find the money to, to go next season. Anyway, so I, I he took me in the, the, the desperate hope that I would enjoy it and obviously absolutely loved it. I think the first game that I, that I got taken to, I did fall asleep halfway through. Nah, I was, it was like a Tuesday off. night game, and I was like, and I remember waking up and I went with my cousin Steve, and he told me that he'd been on the pitch and scored two goals and then come off because because he told me I told him that I was waking up, so he had to come off. And I I remember getting to like sixteen and like that memory still being in me. I'd been like, yeah, down down the pub, like yeah, yeah, yeah. My mate Steve had a couple of games, so I just, like, <laughs> and then thinking back and then actually remembering what. The, the kind of coordination my cousin's got and going, he definitely did not score two goals for Tammy. It just didn't happen. I think he was 16 to figure that out. But do you know when those th- those memories <laughs> that kind of just sit dormant yeah. in your mind that you just don't even think about ever? And then all of a sudden I was like, why am bastard? <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely not true. I like the idea that your dad's took you there and whether you liked it or not, you were still going to go there at some Yeah, point. <laughs> well, he took me and I loved it. And then he took my brother, Mark. And I remember we played Wolves at home. We drew 1-1. And Mark was just not. He, he goes to match a few times with us now, and he's into footy, but he's not not the same. Yeah. And he was very young at that time, four. So he, he, he hitchhiked <laughs> hit <like> there. <laughs> Went to the pub for a few scoops before it. Um, but he asked. He said to me, "Dad, I want to go to the, the toilet twice in the first half." And when he went the first time, we scored, and then came and he was like, oh, "And then when he went again, Wolves scored." So it, it was like a crap game, but the only two things. That happened in the game. My dad missed because he had to take my little brother to the toilet, so he didn't get taken again. He was like, "You, you can have him on a Saturday." Um, That's but, quite different for you though, because you're, you're obviously your dad is a Tramier fan, isn't he? he is, is your yeah. dad a Tramier fan? No, he, he's got a got an affinity with Everton. He's more of a rugby fan, to be honest. Yeah. He's not mm-hmm. a. He's one of them who, if you start talking to him about football, they'll join in. But no, he's always been a rugby fan. So yeah, my, my dad is one of them. I've said it before. He just likes football in general. But when he was a kid. His dad died quite young, so he didn't have anyone taking the match. But 
Birkenhead Boys Club, he played football for, used to go to Man United randomly. They'd have a bus that'd take them to Man United, so he grew up going United games, but just because it was like local club, they'll take you. But then when I'd ask him to take me a game, he'd take me, but he'd never like say, do you want to go? He'd just be wait for me to ask. And then by the time I started going, like eight, nine, I think I just started going with mates dead young. Hitchhiking. Yeah, hitchhiking. <laughs> but then my sister went for a bit, funnily enough, and then he, uh, Joel, we played football with his brother, went to, we went as like, like a little gang. Yeah. You know, you're like running down the road at like 10. The Brenton Park Massive. It was literally three quid to get in, wasn't it? Yeah, like it was cheap. Back now, it was very you, cheap. That's why it was so easy to go to the match, because it was like, your mum would give you a fiver, you get like some sweets. Yeah. So you get in for three quid, and it was like, you were up the house for a few hours. Yeah. I don't know if anyone else used to do this. One of my like, sort of, long-term memories from going to matches as a kid and and like it i feel like the like the most like strong of those memories from that wembley game from 2000 mm. was we used to sit in the main stand and like where you'd come in you'd have there was like all like the you know like the way the food and the programs were and then you go around to the right and you go upstairs and then up another set of stairs and then you comes out into the ground and i always used to say i always used to never look out of the the gaps that went out onto the ground until the moment that we were going out so I could properly enjoy yeah. like the like you know that like, as you come out and you can hit and like you can see them warming up you can smell the pitch you can hear the, the kind of the, the music doing the teams saying oh number one John Achterberg <laughs> like as you were doing that but I remember being at Wembley and walking around the concourse at the old Wembley and they've obviously got all the, yeah. the things going out and you could see straight out into the, the ground and obviously it was a Wembley Cup final so it was buzzing and I just was like, I'm not looking. I'm not looking until it's R1 and we can go out and you can prop. Because I, I don't want to ruin it. Yeah. I don't want to spoil it. And then coming out and it being like a full, like a mess of experience as you come out, getting the sound and the smell and and, and, the, and you know seeing what, everything. You look back and you think what an iconic stage and that, that was. And that was the last League Cup final ever played. Mm-hmm. One and of the last games so ever played there. Because I mean, Trammy might not ever get to a League Cup final again in my life. No. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, well, they won't now. They got knocked out of it yesterday. <laughs> so I just sometimes I look back and think, wow, I got to go to that I know. stadium. It's, it's I know. incredible. Well, we got some amazing times when we all fire started going. My dad said to me after the, I'll tell you what it was. I think it was after the Liverpool FA Cup game, you know, when we lost 4 2. But that was obviously like, I think at the time you kind of appreciated it was a bit of a big deal. I think looking back on it now, I think, can hell we played Liverpool at home in an FA Cup? What was it like? Fifth round game or something, and we and we just knocked Everton out like two rounds before it. And I remember it's just insane. And like I remember being there, and the the whole ground was just buzzing. Like even though we'd lost, I think Mm. everyone it was just a bit of a sense of pride in the the local club and like the the fact that we'd got to that point and could have easily have have forced a replay or won that game. It was it was fairly tight for the most part because you feel like football back then you could get them results. I would want nothing. Less than playing Liverpool now. No, if we got Drew Liverpool in FA Cup. I'd be gutted. Well, the last two Premier League teams we've we've uh, played, we haven't scored a goal. And thirteen, <laughs> we've conceded. We've conceded. I think 13. Liverpool would probably put thirteen past us. Nah, little mugs. We're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and my uh, one of my memories as a kid when I went, I went with one of my dad's mates, and um, I was was in the Johnny King stand again. And the stairs at Tramway are quite slippery, aren't they? Yeah. And it was one of them games where, because it, it like left water, and the, the, the stadium's not exactly, it's not a stadium, it's ground, isn't it? It's not really great. Arena, mate. Great for stuff like that. But I was Call only, it what it is. I was only young, arena. I was about seven or eight, and I remember just like 
have you ever done just falling up the stairs? And I think everyone's done it. Everyone's <laughs> done it. Ev- as well. oh, everyone's done yeah. it. And ev- you get a little way, and you're like, oh, I'm only a kid, leave me alone. <laughs> I've hitchhiked here, I've done respect. <laughs> I fell down the stairs at MK Don's away when Delroy Facey scored that goal that's in bit, like the last that, minute. That's Rolled different. all the way to the bottom of the stairs. <laughs> that's a bit different. You're not walking up the stairs with a program and a hot dog. <laughs> no, no, I was not. But like when that Liverpool game was on, my dad turned to me and he said, he went, he was like, and like, I feel like my dad kind of said it to be like, like he genuinely meant the sentiment behind it. But like when I kind of think about it, I think, all right, dad, fucking hell, wind it in. He went, he went, Dan, enjoy this because it will never get this good again. <laughs> I was like, all right, nice one. And then we got relegated that season, spent like 10 years doing basically nothing in League One and then got relegated twice again. And I was like, all right, fair enough, dad, whatever. <laughs> seeing the future. <laughs> um, I'm going to wrap it up there, lads. Thanks once again for joining us. It's been a been a pleasure. That was that was a lovely chat, wasn't it? Very good, yeah. Lovely that. As we mentioned at the beginning, make sure you stay tuned and listen to to, to Nigel's little bit at the end there because it, it is really good. It's really really nice, especially if you're a Tramia fan. Even if you're not a Tramia fan, you know, if you're a football fan and someone who who goes to matches and and kind of has that emotional connection, particularly at the moment when we can't go, it'll be something that you'll enjoy. And. We'll see you on our next episode, which is out on Friday. We've got another episode of Not For Me, Clive. And then on the Monday following, we have the... I mean, I don't even know how to describe him. We we have the main man, Thomas Rongan. Oh, God, yeah. The main man himself. <laughs> so that's going to be very enjoyable. I started editing that last night, so that'll be very enjoyable. So, yeah, thanks for joining us, lads. Thanks for joining us, all you lovely listeners out there. You can support us via our Patreon. We've got... A Premier League and a Championship predictions episode up there already. We're going to be dropping a League One and League Two episode this week, as well as some other special content on there. So keep an eye out for that. It's just two ninety nine a month. Helps us to grow the podcast. And we're going to be sending some of that money to charity as well. Yep. And we'll have some more information about that around this episode and on Twitter this week. So yeah, do get involved. And you know, we appreciate every single person who listens, every single person who comments on Twitter. So if you can spare a couple of quid to just help us grow the podcast and put a little bit towards charity, we do genuinely really appreciate it. And I mentioned our Twitter there. If people want to find us on Twitter, where can they find us? Yeah, I think you can find us at marking underscore man. You can. Oh, so happy I got that right. And you use the hashtag, where's the talking, lads? Superb. And Ryan, where can they find this podcast? It's in all the usual places. But where are those usual places? They're iTunes, Acast, Spotify... Google Podcasts. He knows them. He knows all of them. And many more. And many, many more. Just Google Man Marking Podcast and away you go. And uh, literally, away you go. And then uh, you, go to Patreon. Then get your credit card out. <laughs> Stop Don't get your credit card out. Get your debit card out. Get your debit card out. Get your debit Harry card out. Account number. Just send us your money. Three numbers on the back. It's going to charity. Just do it. Do it now. (laughs) Anyway, I'm going to leave it there before we get ourselves in trouble. Thank you very much for listening. This has been Man Marking. We're going to leave you with Nigel Adderley. Nigel Adderley. And we'll see you on Friday for Not For Me, Clive. We were going to ask what your favourite of the two playoff wins were in recent Tramia history, but might have to change that since we'd probably be the Boreham Wood one, I'd imagine. so. I wasn't at the Boreham Wood game. Um, Ah. I have to say, I couldn't face going um, because I was there for the, for the Forest Green game um, previous year, and that was one of the darkest days as a Tramia fan, I think, losing to that lot and the way we lost. Um, 
and it was a pretty well i say stressful if you can in football terms the following season was pretty stressful you know we had to get promotion that season um you know otherwise i think the club would still be in non-league now yeah. um, and i and i thought i i, I know what I thought I can't face shamefully to say, having seen Tranmere through some pretty low times, having seen us lose to Forest Green, um, prospect of us seeing lose to Boreham Wood. I mean, and I've had dealings with Boreham Wood, and they're not my favourite football club for, for a variety of reasons. Um, I just thought this would be the end. So I was offered work um, on that particular afternoon, so I took it. Even before we qualified, because um, I always thought we were going to play Boreham Wood in the final. Even before we played um, Ebbsfleet in the semi-final, I, um, I deliberately took work that day because I thought, well, if we lose, then, you know, I'm, I'm working anyway. Then we got through, and I was actually commentating for the world feed on both of the League Two playoff semi-finals um, that day. Um, and I was doing Lincoln against Exeter, at three o'clock, which was the same time that we'd played um, Boreham Wood. And, um, and I said, uh, I, was in the, I was doing it what they call off-tube um, in this place in London. And they said, do you want us to put the Tranmere game on another screen for us? I said, no, don't want to know. I've got to concentrate on doing this game. And then at halftime, they, it came on the people on the talk, but they went, Tranmere are one up. And I went, oh, brilliant, great. And they went, and you also had a man sent off in the first minute. <laughs> and, um, and then I went upstairs to make a cup of tea in the kitchen and then it came up on my phone in the ninth minute of added time and I bore them with it equalised and I thought right that's it we've lost and I went back downstairs to um, to do the second half of, of Lincoln Exeter which was a dreadful nil-nil draw um, and I had the CFAX um, live commentary um, up on the, the computer and I glancing across you know, I was just waiting for Boreham Wood to score I thought put me out of misery you know score it's all over you know and the season's finished and whatever and then of course it comes up you know 1-2 Norwood Jesus Christ you know punching the air whilst I'm commentating on Lincoln against Exeter and then I just needed my game to finish and my game was uh, about 10 minutes behind and um, basically game finished I go that's it Lincoln and Exeter nil ran into the gallery where they're controlling the, um, uh, the pictures that go out. And I said, right, can you put BT Sport on, please? And they couldn't find BT Sport. So I couldn't <laughs> watch the end. So I had to go out in the street. And I remember I was in Acton in the, in the pouring rain, because remember it was pouring with rain that day. And I was having to follow the game on, te- on Twitter um, the last five minutes, walking up and down the street in Acton. And... Um, you know, then of course it came through the mid one, and people must have thought I'd have, I was mentally ill because I was running up and down the street <laughs> screaming. Um, and yeah, so shamefully I didn't go. Um, and you know, obviously with hindsight, I, I regret not going, but it was just the way it was at the time. And I don't think I was feeling particularly great about a number of things away from football at the time. And I just thought, you know, just just do the work. And I took the work before I knew we, we qualified, and I thought that was, you know, and. And to be honest, my um, my family didn't want to go because they all came to the um, the board the Forest Green game, 
And um, and that was a horrible day. I, I, I was convinced we were going to lose that game. Everyone was convinced we were going to beat Forest Green. I was convinced we were going to lose. And I was you know, I was in such a bad mood before that game. My wife actually sent me out of the house to go for a walk. Um, we only live um, 40 minutes on the tube from Wembley. So we got the tube down there. And I it was a horrible day, as everyone remembers. And I was in such a, you know, a low place for days after that. And... Um, you know, and on social media, probably not helping. And, you know, you, you get over it because you have to. And then, you know, get, getting back in the league after that, it was it was brilliant. And I was determined to be at the Newport game. I ended up commentating on it um, because I wasn't intending to, but um, I was offered it by TalkSport. And I, and I spoke to my mother um, and they said, TalkSport asked me if I want to do the game. I said, what do you think? And my mum said, my dad had died like five months previously. So, oh, your dad will want you to do it and do it properly. So I did it. And it was it was a really hard thing to do. Um, not sure I would commentate on us in the playoff final again, but obviously great. We won 1-0. And it was just a, a brilliant, brilliant day. And, you know, as you say, you, you look back on those days because there were so many miserable days supporting Tranmere that when we do have really good days to enjoy, you've got to make the most of them. I don't know how you would have even done that, to be honest. I'm not sure how when that kind of Jennings score goes in, yeah. you, you you remain professional. <laughs> oh, I, I, did, I don't know. I mean, I've listened. I've got I've, sad, very sadly, I've got the, the the commentary of it on my phone, um, which you can have a listen if you want. Um, it was. I mean, it was like you know, the whole game was was quite um, was quite you know because it wasn't a great game. It was a terrible game. And Newport with a better team should have had a penalty should have won um, and they didn't. And um, so, um, when I think, you know, I remember tweeting out probably in the flush of elation and relief and everything else that after all the bad luck we've had in big games, um, Mark Bosnich, um, playoff semi-finals, various, you know, various other things, we were due a bit of luck in a big game. And I think we had it on that day. And um, yeah, it was, I mean, I just concentrated and concentrated. And I have to say, Mark Saggers at the end of the game, the presenter said, said, oh yeah, well played to our commentator, Nigel Adley, a Tranmere fan, um, uh, you know, 100% neutral today. And I'm sure his dad was very happy looking down. And that was it. I just burst into tears then. So I think it all been pent up inside me on that day. And then it all came out. He finds Caprice down the right-hand side. Caprice again from some way out. We'll have to try and take on Butler. He's got Buxton charging forward on the overlap. And now Buxton can deliver the cross. He's gone beyond Bakinson. Great skills into the penalty area. Back towards Pringle. And now wide towards Caprice again. Space for the delivery. Early looking for Norman. Jennings with the header! And Connor Jennings has done it! Two minutes to play. And Tranmere Rovers surely have the goal. Which clinches back-to-back promotions. Jennings, a hero 12 months ago, has come up with a big moment once again, and the 10 men of Newport look absolutely crestfallen, but Tranmere Rovers are on the brink of promotion once again, Wembley drama, all the way on TalkSport, it's Newport County nil, Tranmere Rovers won. Butler will take the free kick, Day stays forward. If Tranmere defend this, they are surely promoted. Butler's free kick, high into the penalty area. The goalkeeper's up there. It's nodded clear by McNulty. 
gathered by Dimitri on the far side. The challenge comes in from Banks. Banks has won it back. And that is it. Tranmere Rovers can celebrate back-to-back promotions. The Newport County players crumple to the turf in utter despair. They gave everything with ten men. But for the second season running, the Tranmere Rovers players spill onto the pitch to celebrate. Twelve months ago, they had to win to come back into the league. Now, they are heading back to League One. And after back-to-back relegations, they have squared the circle. It is back-to-back promotions for Tranmere Rovers. Big hand, Chris, for our commentator today. Because, whether you know it or not, Nigel Adderley is a Tranmere Rovers supporter. That was brilliant commentary from a man who was absolutely neutral right the way through. But I'm going to say this too. He's got his wife and his family here. And the one man missing today will be looking down on this. A man who passed in the last year, Nigel's dad, who was very much part of Tranmere Rovers and very much part of introducing our commentator today to this great game. So, brilliantly well done today, Nigel Adley. Right at the end of that game, and Mark Palios, who was promoted into the third-tier English football as a player with Tranmere Rovers 43 years ago, can now look on as his team, very much his team, can celebrate back-to-back promotions. A club associated with perennial failure will now believe they are back where they belong. And Mark Palios has a smile as wide as the River Mersey. As Tramia Rovers, for the second successive year, lift aloft a promotion trophy. Back-to-back promotions and the celebrations will be long and very, very loud on the Wirral this evening and for much of the summer. The team which tumbled out of the Football League have raced through League 2 heading back the other way. And Newport County deserves so much credit for making it such a dramatic game. But in the end, it is all about the winners at Wembley. And it's Tramia Rovers who can celebrate another nerve-shredding victory.